0: Our scripture reading this afternoon is 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10, and can be found on page 10 of your bulletin or will be projected above me. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. One but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The word of the Lord.
1: Good afternoon, my name is Andy Wood, I'm the associate pastor here, and uh, it's a privilege to be able to bring God's word uh, this afternoon. This is an important passage, Um, it is in some ways uh, the end of the first section of Peter, It's a big deal, could probably preach like 30 sermons on it. In some of my research uh, in the last couple of weeks, I saw there are books written about three words in this passage, like whole books written about three words in this passage. And so um, we're going to do our best uh, to try to make sense of it, uh, to keep it in front of us and to see the Holy Spirit uh, transform our hearts. And so... Uh, With that, kids, let me give you a couple of things to listen for. The first thing uh, is a scuba diver. Second thing is a rock, obviously. If you've read along so far, we're going to talk about some rocks. Uh, And third, crosses on your shoes. Okay? Uh, Scuba diver, rocks, and crosses on your shoes. So, a couple of things just as we get into this passage that I think are helpful for us to remember by way of introduction. The first one is this. Peter, who wrote this letter, is Peter the Apostle. He is one of the big three with Jesus in most of the huge moments in Jesus' life and ministry. Um, And Peter, if you remember... Uh, preaches in Acts, this beautiful sermon, uh, thousands come to Jesus, it's really amazing. We also remember that Peter is the one who really struggled with Gentiles coming to faith in Christ and what that meant. And so for him to use the words that Brian read earlier from Exodus 19 about Gentiles is really significant. Uh, You may know the book of Galatians that Paul wrote when Peter was showing preference to Jews over Gentiles and was Um, showing partiality towards the Jews because he wasn't sure exactly what to do with the Gentiles. Should they have to keep Jewish laws or not? And so for Peter, this, this letter, this section of this letter is proof to us that God is at work in the hearts of his people. If Peter the Apostle can understand that, as Brian Habig says, these love, God's love words for Israel are true for the Gentiles, and Peter can write it so confidently and so clearly for us, we can take hope that the gospel, the grace of Jesus that transformed Peter can also transform us. Now, as we come to this passage, it really is the first, it's the end of the first part of 1 Peter. Peter has been laying out this argument, and the argument goes something like this. We're born again, verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3. We're born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And Peter, right out of the gate, he says, Hey, it's me, Peter, you've been born again to a living hope. Everything has changed. (laughs) Everything has changed. You have an inheritance in front of you that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. And then he begins to unpack what that new birth means for believers. And he says, because you've been born again into this living hope, even your trials, even your suffering gets transformed. Instead of just hating your circumstances, and being angry and frustrated and sullen, God transforms those into opportunities for his grace to be made known to you in new ways. Even your trials are transformed because you've been born to this living hope. Then he says in the second half of chapter 1, that this new birth has actually given you a new heart with new desires, and you no longer want the things that you wanted before you were a Christian. Your heart is being changed. You're able to grow in holiness by God's grace and by the power of the Spirit. You're able to move towards holiness more and more into the image of Jesus because you were born again into a living hope. Always with our eyes pointed to Jesus' second coming, to when we'll be with him forever, there is this forward-leaning posture of the Christian that moves through our suffering and into greater holiness. That's what Peter's talking about. And then he adds this third component here in the first part of chapter two. It's that we do those things side by side together, he says, like stones built into this house. We're gonna explain that in just a minute. But I need you to see even at the, at, at the start here that things are so different for us. We would so often just want our trials to be over. We just want to get out of them as quickly as possible. And Peter says, no, you can endure because of the living hope that you've been given. When it's easy to just be our natural selves and give in to our desires, Peter would say, no, you've been born again into this living hope. You can pursue holiness. You can look more like Jesus. Change is possible. And then he comes and says, your tendency is going to want to be, especially in our sort of American individualistic culture, to try to do this on your own. And Peter's going to come and say, no, you've been born again into a living hope and into a new family, into a new house, into the church. And so the things that you had done before, your, your isolation, your independence, those are things that actually are pulling you away from the church instead of helping you lean in. Uh, Richard Lovelace has this quote that I think is really helpful. It, he, he diagnoses really well, I think, um, it's what's typical of sort of American Christianity uh, in, in some not great ways. This is what he says. In this, this model of the Christian life, The individual believer is connected to the source of grace like a scuba diver who draws his air supply from the surface through a hose. You guys remember, you've maybe seen them in museums or wherever, the old school scuba suits, right, that look like they weigh 3 million pounds, and they just have this hose connected from the top of the suit back up to the boat, right, to get oxygen. He says that's what it looks like. The the believer is connected to the source of grace like a diver who draws his air supply from the surface through a hose. He is essentially a self-contained system, cut off from the other divers working around him. If their air supply is cut off, this does not damage him, nor can he share with them the air that he receives. The situation would be no different if he were working alone 100 miles away. Have you felt that? In your Christian life before? Maybe some of you actually really would prefer that, right? It's hard to live in community. And so we think, gosh, it's just me and Jesus. And that's a picture of what we're not supposed to do. To have this individualistic Christianity that really I'm largely unaffected by how people around me are doing, and I can't help them or give them air, I can't do anything for them. It's just, me and my source of grace. Peter comes and he says, that is not how we are to live. We are to live connected to one another. And how do we do it? We do it as recipients of God's love. Um, we're, gonna, we're gonna think about, we've been talking all uh, series about how, what it looks like to live faithfully in the world. And uh, as we live faithfully in the world, Uh, this This is what we need to remember. We live faithfully in the world by coming together as the church. Living in this world, but for another world. There's this tension that we have. Because we've been born again to a living hope, there's this tension where we live in this world, but we're living for another world. And it gives us a new perspective on our trials and our suffering, on our holiness, and on the church. And that's what we want to look at today in a couple of different ways. First, we're recipients of God's love. Peter says in our passage that we come to Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Jesus even uses this metaphor of a stone himself, right? The the stone um, that is rejected by men has become the cornerstone. This most important stone that people have cast off, that these builders think, ah, that's worthless. God has says, no, it is chosen and precious. Jesus is the cornerstone, the foundation on which everything is built. And he is chosen and precious in my sight. This cornerstone, uh, I am not a builder, and you're gonna know that really quickly. Um, But in those days, the most important stone That you needed to lay when you were building a house was the first one the angles on it had to be just right so that when you laid it when you built the wall going out this way and a wall going out this way and it built up that it built at the right angle and was sturdy and able to support all of the other stones and peter says jesus is that cornerstone He is the foundation, he is chosen and precious, but it's not just that God loves Jesus, the cornerstone who is chosen and precious, but that us, because of our faith as we come to Jesus, we also are chosen and precious. We're gonna experience the same things that Jesus experienced. As he was rejected, we'll be rejected, we'll be thought of as different or weird. We'll suffer persecution uh, for our Christian faith, and that rejection, is evidence that we are following Jesus, that we are like him, that we are with him. Peter says in verse five, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. God loves us. We need to remember that in our new birth that we are loved by God, not just that we are loved by him, also that we are recipients of his presence. This language about the house It doesn't say temple, right? The word temple, Peter never uses. But he uses all of these descriptive words about the temple, right? He says, you're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, right? Inside this house, there are priests, and those priests are going to be offering sacrifices. All of that happened in the temple, And the temple in the Old Testament is the place where God dwelt with his people. By virtue of our new birth, God has come to dwell with us. We are being built up into this temple, this spiritual house, the church. It's not going to have walls necessarily, right, the building Uh, We haven't had a building for seven years. We're about to get one, and it's going to be amazing, but it's still just a building. This church, this spiritual house, is people. It's made up of all of us who've come to Jesus, who've put our faith in him. And So we line up, as it were, next to Jesus, on top of one another, building this spiritual house where God's presence dwells. It's a fundamental reality for the believer. Because of our new birth, God dwells with us in this spiritual house. If you skip down and look at verses 9 and 10, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, repeating some of the same things that he said earlier. People for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Not only is God's presence with us immediate because of this spiritual house that he's building in the church, we are also called his people. That, this reference here from Peter is from Hosea, the prophet Hosea. Some of you may know this story. It's in the Old Testament. Hosea is called by God to go marry Gomer. And God says, I want you to marry her, and this will be a picture of my people's relationship with me. So you're going to marry Gomer, and she's going to cheat on you repeatedly, like a lot but I want you to be faithful to her. And you're gonna have children and one of those children is gonna be named No Mercy because God will have no mercy on that family. And then the next child is born and that child's name is Not My People. And then Gomer continues in her cheating Uh, She even, uh, we think, maybe uh, was a prostitute at this point. Um, She gets sold, uh, and God comes to Hosea and says, I want you to go buy her back. I want you to redeem her. Go, bring her back to yourself. As a picture of God not giving up on his people. And so he goes, he buys her back, and he brings her to himself And he says, on no mercy, I will have mercy. And on not my people, she will be my people. You will be my people. And it's this beautiful picture of God's presence dwelling with his people. Even in our brokenness, even in our sin, even in our struggles, God says, I am gonna dwell with my people in the church, By the Holy Spirit in our hearts. God is with us. It's a fundamental reality. God has set his love upon us, he has chosen to dwell with us. Not only that, we're recipients of God's commissioning. Peter says, We are being built up as living stones. We're being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're given a job, this priesthood of all believers is something that was true in the Old Testament of the nation of Israel and true of the church now. The priest's function was really to represent God to the people and represent the people before God. So the priest was the one who would go into the temple and make sacrifices on behalf of the people. Sacrifices that were acceptable to God. And that's our job. As we come to Jesus, as we experience this new birth and this living hope, we are to be priests for one another. Now, what does that look like? How do we do that? This is not something that Um, maybe is common, um, this idea of offering sacrifices, but it is um, an important one. But it's transformed by Jesus. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross eliminated the need for any more sacrifices. We don't have to do that anymore. Our sacrifices now are spiritual on behalf of one another. We can come in our service, in our prayers for one another, on behalf of them. It is, in in essence, we are lifting up our brothers as we pray, as Jerry prayed this afternoon, for the calls, for the Ryans, for others who are in need or hurting. We are, that's a priestly work. It's not something that's just for Brian and I as pastors or for elders or any, any office, it's all of us. We are priests to each other as we represent each other before God. That idea of the scuba diver just having air for himself, it doesn't work that way. In the church, we're all built like this wall on, next to each other and beside each other, on top of each other, there is this, uh, if one brick is taken out, the whole thing crumbles. We are connected to one another, and it's important for us to perform this priestly function, offering spiritual sacrifices, praying for one another, being there, experiencing the grace of Jesus. It's one thing to know that God's grace to you is real in trial. It's another thing to get a casserole on your front porch, right? It's a picture of God's grace. Your hands have put it together. You've baked it. You've dropped it off. And that is a picture of God's grace and our connectedness. That is priestly work. We're also commissioned in verse 9. To proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So not only are we priests, we're also proclaimers. And we could proclaim these excellencies in a lot of different ways. If you think about here at the church, how do we proclaim the excellencies? Well, we worship together, right? Our worship is in a sense one big proclamation week after week of the excellencies of God. And of Jesus and all that he's done for us. So don't stop coming to church. right? It's easy to say to you guys who are here, don't stop coming to church, but don't stop coming to church. There is good in it for you and good for others. Some of us come, even this afternoon, barely making it in here. And to hear your singing is an encouragement to us. To see your confidence in God's grace is a picture for us. When we can't stand on our own to be held by our brothers and sisters is a picture of the excellencies of God who brought us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We proclaim his goodness by being together in worship, being together in relationships, that we can... Uh, more easily withstand the, the sufferings of the world, the, the difficulties of of a broken world, of our own hearts that tend to still want to sin and have fleshly desires. All of these things, we're stronger together, and we need to be proclaiming these excellencies. Back and forth. We can also proclaim these excellencies in our work, in whatever it is that God has given you to do. You proclaim His excellencies not uh, by putting a Christian stamp on it, but just by doing good work, by being agents of God's redemption in the world, by being the best teacher, accountant, mother. Whatever the job is, by doing that well, we proclaim the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness and into light. This quote is attributed to Martin Luther. Um, He says this, The maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays, not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. The Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on his shoes but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. We proclaim the excellencies of God when we do good work. If you're a student focusing on your studies, displaying the power of God, his beauty in creation, the intelligence that he's given us as we put those things to use, we are proclaiming his excellency. Whatever task you've been given right now in your job professionally or whatever you may be doing, as you do those things well, you proclaim God's goodness to a world that doesn't understand us, to a world that it wouldn't make sense why you would, care about beauty or why you would pursue justice? Why would you serve instead of being selfish? Those are the expectations of the world and yet for us to pursue those things is a picture of the goodness of God and proclaiming his excellencies. Um, reading a book on First Peter. It's called Outposts of Hope. I'd really recommend it to you. Um, Doug Webster wrote it. And one of the things he says uh, is this. He says, The elect exiles are homeless in the hostile hinterland of Asia Minor, but at home in the household of God. Christ's followers sing two songs. This is my father's world, and this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Paradoxically, believers are simultaneously strangers in a strange land and the beneficiaries of a home field advantage. They are social outsiders and God's insiders. In a world that doesn't make sense, when non-Christians struggle to understand what it might mean for us to follow Jesus, we have this tension. We live in these two places. We've been born again to a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. Everything about us is fundamentally transformed. We're living for a world that we can't see yet, but we know is coming. We can endure our sufferings because we know Jesus is coming back. We can pursue holiness in, in all, of, all the ways that we can because we want to look like Jesus when he gets back. We live as the church, as his people, living stones being built together in this spiritual house where God dwells, his presence and his love have been set upon us. He's commissioned us to be priests and proclaimers. And so we live in this tension, misunderstood by coworkers and neighbors with deep dependence on one another and we can hold those to hold those things together our fundamental reality is that we have been born again into a living hope not just individuals but as a community as the church and we depend on one another and we walk together carrying each other at times doing this priestly work for one another. One of the quotes on your um, bulletin on page two is from Karen Jobes. She's another author and scholar. Um, a wonderful picture for us of what it looks like to live in this world. First Peter presents the Christian community as a colony In a strange land an island of one culture in the midst of another the new birth that gives Christians a new identity and a new citizenship in the kingdom of God makes us in whatever culture we happen to live visiting foreigners and resident aliens there as that reality sets in for us I hope it turns you towards one another that we become more connected as a church through community groups, through Bible studies, through uh, just spending time together, through ministry side by side as we serve our local ministry partners and our missionary partners. As we do this work together, we proclaim God's excellencies. We reinforce our fundamental identity as God's people, people he set his love on, and that he is building into a spiritual house. Let's pray. Lord God, you are kind to us in all that you do. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this beautiful passage. Your love words for Israel given to us, the church. Pray that you would help us to come to you, to remember that your love has been set upon us. That you dwell with us, that you've called us to love and care for one another. Strengthen the bonds in our church family, we pray. Help us to love the hurting and the broken. Help us to rejoice with those who rejoice. God, help us to walk together as we wait your second coming, as we look forward with this hope that we have for you to make all things right. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.